tonight. We're still in our series on the Ten Commandments, Sixth Commandment. And I suspect that you don't need to turn to Exodus chapter 20, because it's really simple, isn't it? Do you know the Sixth Commandment? You shall not murder. That's simple, isn't it? I don't think you even need that in front of you, because you can remember, can't you? Four words. You shall not murder. Four words that are so simple and that I think probably everyone agrees with. Just about everyone agrees, don't they? You shall not murder. So why are we spending time on it? Especially if you're part of a home group and it isn't very long ago, is it? What was it? April, maybe March, that we spent an evening on you shall not murder. And does it really merit another evening? Isn't just one evening, surely? That's more than enough. Well, we're spending another evening on it because it is bigger and broader and more relevant than you might think from just hearing you shall not murder. And also because the aim of preaching and teaching isn't just to give you an interesting talk. If it was, well, it ought to be new every time to keep your interest up. But I hope you realise that's not the aim. I hope you don't come with that aim. The aim is that we should be doers of God's word. We should put it into practice. And for that, it helps often to hear the same thing again because none of us take it in in just one go do we usually so tonight it's all on you shall not murder and it's nearly all going to be application tonight of that commandment apart from a little explanation here's the very little explanation we need because we need to get clear what the words are what are the words you shall not what there's a question mark over this because your answer might depend on your Bible version. You shall not what? Ah, oh, so someone says kill. Because if you've got a translation of the Bible, it will say kill. And others say murder. Because if you've got a new translation, it says murder. So which is it? Is it murder or is it kill? And here we hit a little bit of a problem. It's not much of a problem. It's just the original word there in the Bible isn't fully represented by either of our words, kill or murder. You see, the word kill, uh, that, the words that they've got there, in, that God put there in the Hebrew, is narrower than kill. Because there is killing the Bible allows. In fact, I would say even requires execution of murderers, and when there's a just war, well, we could have a big argument about what makes a war a just war, but you clearly have the concept in the Bible. So there is killing of humans that is not breaking of this commandment. It's narrower than kill, but it's broader than murder. Because other parts of the Old Testament law take this word and apply this commandment to things like causing someone to die by your bull running into them and goring them to death. Or by you failing to have a proper guard on your roof and they fall off. Or other ways that you actually damage their health by your carelessness, by your reckless actions. And so the commandment here is broader than murder but narrower than kill. Maybe a more accurate translation would be, you shall not cause unjustified human death. And that's not quite as snappy, is it? So you can stick with you shall not murder. Just make a mental note that it's really something like you shall not cause unjustified human death. Now, that's, that's all my explanation this evening. The rest of the time is application. 
in two halves. How does this apply to our society? And how does this apply to ourselves? First of all, our society. Now, quite rightly, when we turn up to church, we expect to have the Bible applied to us personally, and and it must be. But the Bible is also a guide to society. And we shouldn't overlook that because we should care about our society. So let's hear about some ways this commandment six is needed by our society. I'm purposely spending time on this because we shouldn't just think about self. We should be more broad minded. Why does our society need this? Our society agrees you shall not murder. But why? Why shall you not murder? Well, children at school are taught the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It seems to be the new school's version of a religious catechism. They memorise these rights they supposedly have. And they're taught that humans have a right to life and love and happiness and an education. But why? Where did they get these rights from? I've tried asking children. I haven't yet got an answer. I've tried asking adults. (laughs) What gives humans a right to life? but not the slug in your garden that you put slug pellets on, or the cow that you might have carved up for dinner earlier today. What gives humans a right to life, but not them? Well, I haven't heard a good answer yet from the people whose basis for life is not God and his words. I've heard an attempt at an answer. I've heard many attempts at an answer. Here's one attempt I heard. I was taking assembly in a school not very far away from here. And at the end, the head said, we are a school where we value everyone because everyone's good at something. Now, what do you think of that as a basis? Sounds quite nice. We value everyone because everyone's good at something. But when you think about it, it may sound nice, but it's really rather dangerous. It it gives no strong defence against Nazi extermination of people who are deemed useless. And you may, and I hope you very definitely do, disagree with the Nazis deeming them useless, but you've opened the door to that if you value people according to whether you think they're good at something. How? Who are we to judge whether they are good at something or not? The Bible gives us much better, and our society so needs it. It gives us a solid foundation for you shall not murder. So what is the Bible's foundation for it? Why is it better than just an assertion in the UN Declaration on Human Rights? It's got a reason. What is the basis? That was a genuine question. Brian. It's the... That's right, it's that we're made in God's image. Let's turn back to Genesis, well, I say back, I don't know where you are in your Bible. Let's turn to Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, after all that wickedness, after God's judgment on wicked people, you might think the image of God was completely wrecked beyond usefulness. But no. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The reason why you shall not murder is because 
Man is made in the image of God. By the way, man there is not just like old-fashioned English. It's actually in the original Hebrew. God's word for humans. Mankind, we might say. And it's such a simple statement. Humans are made in God's image. And its simplicity matters. It's simplicity. That there are, there's no small print. There's no footnotes giving you exceptions. There's no requirement to be good at something. Contrary to the head teacher, no requirement to be good at anything. It's all humans, whether rich or poor, whether famous or obscure, whether in good health or lying unconscious on the hospital beds, whether in the womb or out of the womb, whether ah, an example to society of moral goodness or a complete social menace, whether saint or sinner. All humans are the image of God, and therefore you shall not murder. And our society needs this because it's lacking a foundation. Have a think. What issues in our society does this law and this foundation need? There are all sorts. Can you think of some examples? Issues our society faces, that our society is confused over and faces difficulty with, that this law gives an answer to. Abortion is one. Yes, because we've just said, or I've just said, whether in the womb or out of the womb. Now, we have to sympathise, don't we? There are many difficult cases, and there are women in difficult situations, and we must sympathise, but we must also insist that you shall not murder. Taking, unjustified taking of human life, however early or late its stage of development. What else? Euthanasia, or we could say assisted suicide, which is a very similar thing. Again, there are very difficult cases. And there are very tricky ethical issues in medicine. The withdrawing of food and fluids and treatment is sometimes letting, is sometimes stopping prolonging the dying process rather than killing someone. And where one becomes the other can be difficult to see. There are undeniably difficult cases. And yet we still have to apply, you shall not murder. Unjustified taking of human life. You shall not assist someone in their suicide because suicide is self-murder. Oh, there's another issue, isn't there? Because sadly there's a lot of suicide in our society. It is self-murder. It is a sin. But I must very quickly add, it is not the unforgivable sin. There are some churches that say it is the unforgivable sin, and that shows they've got their understanding of the gospel very wrong. It's not unforgivable, even though it's a sin. We do not need to despair over loved ones who take their lives. But we do need to insist it is a sin that we must guard against. I'll give you another one that might be a little less um, obvious, COVID-19. Because I said the Old Testament law covered not just actually killing someone, but actions that may endanger another person's health. And so that says it is biblical for the government to have laws... 
that restrain our actions where they may affect other people's health. Now, that is not the same as saying the government definitely has got it all right and all health and safety law is sensible. It's not the same as saying that, but it is saying it is biblically justifiable for the government to do this sort of thing, to have health and safety law and pandemic responses. Okay. I want to move on from society, but I thought it was worth spending a little while on how the sixth commandment affects or applies to our society because of two C's that we should have. The first is care for those around us, and the other is confidence that the Bible has good answers that people around us need. Care and confidence. I hope you've got both of those. And so we're interested in how the Bible applies, not just to you, but to society. But let's move on ourselves. How does this sixth commandment apply to ourselves? I want us to see that by seeing how Jesus applies it to ourselves. It will be no surprise that we're turning to what Hannah read to us, Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 onwards. Here Jesus is explaining more clearly the sixth commandment and applying it to us. Now, notice how I said that. He's explaining more clearly the sixth commandment and applying it to us. He isn't changing the commandment. He isn't adding to the commandment. What are my reasons for claiming he isn't changing it or adding to it? Well, what Jesus himself says in verse 17. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Another reason I've got for saying he's not changing or adding to it is what he says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says here is he's going to show us how our righteousness must be better than the Pharisees. He doesn't say it's got to be better than the law of Moses. And what he goes on to do is to show how the Pharisees had watered down the law of Moses. And now he's bringing it back and showing us what it really means. I'm also claiming Jesus isn't adding to or changing the commandment because the sixth commandment always was based on People's value as the image of God. And Jesus is going to bring out implications of that. And because the sixth commandment always was broader than just about murder. You can read that in the books of Moses. And because God always did care about what's going on in our hearts. As we saw weeks ago, it's not the New Testament is about heart religion and the Old Testament is just do the actions. No, God always was concerned for what goes on in our hearts. So, Jesus is explaining and applying the command, not changing it. Now, I was going to go through verses 21 to 26, and Jesus applies the sixth commandment to anger, and to our words, and to seeking reconciliation. But can you guess why I'm not? Because I discovered when preparing it, it was far too much. And so I'm just going to have to be able to do the first one, anger. And then I think you'll... Fine, we're out of time. And that means if you're following in the notice sheet, I'm also dropping the conclusion it's got there. Maybe we'll get onto it next week. And I'm always saying this and then don't do it next week. I don't know. We'll see. 
Okay, so we're going to look at the first one. Jesus says we can break the sixth commandment by our anger. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus says the commandment is not limited to actual murder. Now, it's, it's obvious when we think about it that it would be silly to limit the commandment to just actually murdering. Back in 2013, there was, in the news, there was a teenager from Loughborough who was in court because he had planned an attack on his school. And he'd planned it, and he had made bombs, and he'd bought guns. I don't know how a teenager manages to buy guns and make bombs, but apparently he'd managed it. And he was taken to court. Now, he never carried out the attack because he was thwarted and stopped before he managed it. He didn't actually murder anyone. Would it be sensible to say he's guiltless? Well, of course not, because he was planning it. He wanted to do it. He prepared for it. He just got stopped before he managed. Of course, he's not innocent of murder. And Jesus says that can be true of us. It can be true of us that we don't do the action, but there's an awful lot that's pretty close to the intention in our hearts. And he says that can be shown up by our anger. What anger is Jesus talking about here? It just says anyone who is angry with his brother. I know you might have a footnote that tells you there are some manuscripts that say angry without cause, but uh, it's debatable, but we've got in front of us angry with his brother. And yet God, who never breaks his commands, we read in the Bible, is angry. And Jesus, who never contradicts himself, we find in the temple, looked pretty angry as he drove out the money changers. So what's the difference between a right anger and a sinful anger? Some suggestions. What's the difference between a right anger and a sinful anger? Yeah. So when we are, when our anger is at something that is contrary to God's character and glory, not about me and myself. Thank you, Brian. What else is the difference between right anger and sinful anger? Ah, is it a difficult question? Well, here's, here's one. You, you could even be angry at the right thing, but... Right anger, but it be out of control. Sinful anger is out of control. Right anger is kept under self-control. Sinful anger is taken out of proportion. Right anger is kept in proportion. Sinful anger wants others harm. Right anger wants others good. Jesus' anger in the temple is because he wanted others good. And so he drives out what is, uh, what is harmful to others' good, because it's harmful to the worship of God. 
I expect there's more that could be said, but I think that's a fairly simple guide to the difference between sinful anger and right anger. Is it out of control or self-controlled? Is it out of proportion or is it proportionate to the situation? Is it self-focused or is it about God's glory and his character? Is it wanting others' harm or is it wanting others' good? Okay, Jesus is here talking about sinful anger. Sinful anger breaks the sixth commandment. Why? Because it doesn't value others. It's rather obvious, isn't it? When you let rip your anger at them, that 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 isn't respecting others. It's not valuing others. Sinful anger breaks the sixth commandment because it wants to be rid of someone. At least for a while, it wants them out of the way and out of your life. Sinful anger breaks the sixth commandment because it tears into people. I wonder if anyone else was taught this rhyme. I was taught as a child, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's what I was taught. I always accepted that as being true. So when people call you names, you've just got to be tough. But it's not really true, is it? I don't think it's true. I think actually people's words, our words, can hurt far with a far more lasting effect than sticks and stones. Our words can go in for character assassination. That's why Jesus connects anger in verse 22 with, well, just in the rest of verse 22, words that show contempt for people. By the way, he's not, he's not trying to classify, you know, Raka is pretty bad, you fool is even worse. It, it, that's pharisaical, you know. You can really let off at people as long as you don't use, you know, bad language. It's not that sort of thing. He's talking about words that show contempt for people. Words that let off our anger at them. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cause a lot more lasting damage. And so Jesus says we must restrain our anger. This sinful anger is breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And we must restrain it. Let's have a think to try to help us do that. Have a think about what makes us angry. When people get angry, what reasons do they give for why they've got angry? Let's have some examples. You don't have to be admitting it's you. Let's say people in general. What reasons do people give for why they get angry? Being provoked. That person is irritating. Yeah, that person is so annoying. Yeah. Why else? Someone's very annoying. Someone's done something to them. Yeah. Why else would you get angry? Not getting our own way. Yes, now people don't normally say that one, do they? (laughs) But it's true. Injustice. Yes, so some, it's, it's the situation. It's the situation that's provoked it. Why in the evening, on a, on a Monday evening, might it not take that much to make you angry? I pick Monday at random, but I purposely, it's got to be Monday to Friday. It's been a bad day at work. Yes, it's the pressures earlier, isn't it? Or I got out of bed on the wrong side. <laughs> what feeble excuse that is. Uh, yeah? what, what difference does the side of bed make? What about my parents used to react like this? 
Yeah, it's, it's sort of ingrained into me. Or maybe it's ingrained even deeper. Fight or flight has been ingrained by evolution into me and it's just kicking off at the moment. Or, uh, super spiritual one, there must be a demon of anger taking up residence in me. Or here's one where I've got to run for cover after I've said this one, it's hormones. Yeah, it's in that one. Yeah, please excuse me, those who might not like that one. Anyway, we've got all sorts, haven't we, of reasons we give for why we might be angry. Let's get help from Jesus' brother James and see why he says we get angry. James, would you turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He doesn't use the word anger, but I hope you agree that that description sounds pretty much like anger. By the way, James has quite a few um, places dropped in around his letter that are referring to the Sixth Commandment and very helpful for looking at anger and prejudice and wrong words and what's the cause and what's the right attitude. James is very helpful on this Sixth Commandment. And he doesn't say here the cause of anger is most of those things we've just gone through. He doesn't give them as the cause. Now, those things are not irrelevant, by the way. I'm not saying that they are irrelevant. They can exacerbate the situation. They can provoke. And they should make us understanding of other people being angry. They should make us understanding of others. We should think of some of those exacerbating factors. But they're not the real cause. What's the real cause? There it is in verse one. Your desires that battle within you. Your desires battle within you. The real cause is my kingdom must come. My will must be done. And I react when it isn't. James says these desires are battling to control you. Notice they're battling within you. And the battle within you often provokes a battle with other people. They're battling to get control of you. And you need to remind yourself they've been overthrown by the revolution. Those desires have been overthrown by the revolution. What revolution? The revolution when Jesus became your Lord. And when Jesus became your Lord, those desires were thrown off the throne. If that wasn't too confusing, the use of the two words throne. They were chucked out of control. Maybe that helps. They are now terrorists trying to get back in control. But they are not lords. Don't let them. Remind yourself they've been thrown out by the revolution. Anger. Yes, there are all sorts of factors that can exacerbate it, that can provoke it, but they are not the real cause of it. The real cause is there, those desires that battle within you. 
Now let's have a little more of a think of the desires that battle within us. Uh, a minister in America called David Powlinson, he gave an example. And uh, you'll see it's specific to him being a minister of a church, but I'm sure that you could adapt it to your own situation. He says, Saturday is a really busy day, getting everything ready for Sunday, just, just work all the time. And then Sunday, well, of course, that's a busy day. He's got all of his preparing, and then, then there's leading the services, and there's preaching, and there's speaking to people afterwards, and there's hospitality, and then there's the evening service, and then it gets to 8 o'clock, and what does he want? Well, he said what he wants is just to put his feet up and not have to talk to anyone. And, uh, well, he actually said, and to read the sports pages of the paper, which I was a bit surprised at a minister on a Sunday, but that's what he said. And to drink guava juice, I don't know why, and eat fig rolls. <laughs> He's got funny tastes. And to switch off and not have to talk to anyone. That's what he wants. What does his wife want? And it gets to eight o'clock. And he's just been completely occupied Saturday and Sunday. Well, she wants to talk to him and she wants his full attention and she wants it to be properly done and she wants to plan the week ahead. That's what he said. And he says it's like two trains on the same track going in opposite directions and there's a collision and there's anger. And it's not surprising because there are desires that are opposite. Now, was it wrong for him to want to switch off and have a rest? I hope you agree that it's not. Was it wrong for his wife to want to talk to him and it to be done properly? I hope you agree that it's not. What they both want is good and right. For it to lead to anger, though, must mean desire for those things has gone out of proportion. It must mean my kingdom come, I must have what I want, is somewhere there. It must mean the desire is ruling the person rather than Jesus ruling through us putting his character into practice. Now, the example may not apply exactly to you, but I hope it helps you to think about how desires get control and they battle within us and they can cause anger. So I want you to stop and think, when you get angry, what is it you're desiring? Think of a time you have got angry. If there is no such time, well, please talk to me afterwards. I would like to polish your halo. But think of a time when you've got angry. What have you been wanting at that point in time? And you've wanted it so much that that it being threatened or the possibility of not getting it or actually not getting it has made you angry. Just pause and have a think for a minute. What were you wanting? Now, I don't know what you thought of. It might have been a right thing or it might have been a wrong thing. But recognising what the desire was can help you to avoid the desire getting control. Remember James 4 verse 1, it's battling because it wants control. It wants to get back on the throne that it was ejected from when Jesus became Lord of your life. And recognising what it is can help us with keeping it off the throne. Now, someone might say, this is, this is getting very introspective. Is this all a self-examination to make a spiral downwards? 
No, it's not. I know it can do that, but that's not the purpose. And we must stop it doing that by seeing this. It is soon followed by verse six. Let's just look forward to verse six. But he, God says, the spirit says, he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is grace for the humble. And humility involves seeing what your sin is and confessing it to God. Anger often involves supposedly seeing the other person's sin and confessing it to them in very strident terms. Sin, uh, sorry, humility involves seeing what our own sin is and being willing to take the time to see it and confessing it to God. Anger usually involves proud self-confidence. I am right and you are wrong and this is why I'm going to let you know. Humility involves recognising actually there are desires that have got out of proportion here or maybe even are completely wrong. Recognising what's going on when you get angry isn't to spiral you down far from it. It's because God gives grace to the humble. And it's trying to get that self-understanding so that, well, verse 10 even can happen. Not to spiral you down. No, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Because, as verse 6 says, God gives more grace. He gives more grace. Now, imagine you've run out of money. There is nothing in your wallet and there's nothing in your bank account and the bills are coming in. You've got to pay the electricity and the gas and the phone and what well, is credit card debts to pay off as well. And you spend sleepless nights worrying what's going to happen. And then one morning you go online and you look in your bank account and your rich aunt has made a transfer and put £5,000 in your bank account. Put £5,000 in your account. Now, the money doesn't mean you never get bills, but it means you can pay them. You've got the ability now to pay them. Do you see the parallel? God gives more grace. Freely, he gives to us sufficient grace. As we heard with the children's song this morning, it's a gift free to us, but purchased by Jesus. He gives us sufficient. It doesn't make irritating people go away. It doesn't mean you never get precious at work. It doesn't protect you from all occasions for disagreement in your marriage. But his grace is enough to enable us to overcome the desires that battle within us. His grace is enough to give us the wisdom described at the end of chapter 3. If you don't know it, have a look sometime at the end of chapter 3. And wisdom is described in a way that is so so obviously opposite to anger. And by the way, is basically the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, his grace is enough to restrain and replace our anger. And I must add this. His grace is enough to wipe out of God's record books any anger that we've had. All of our sinful anger, everything in our heart or actions or words that has broken the sixth commandment, his grace is enough to wipe it clean off so there isn't a little trace of it at all. 
His grace is enough that in whatever ways you've broken that sixth commandment or any of the commandments, you can, chapter 4, verse 8, you can come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See that combination of wonderful promise and acceptance and a necessary repentance. Well, as I said, I was hoping to cover more of Matthew 5, but we're going to leave it there. You shall not murder. Four simple words so needed by our society and still needed by us. And Jesus can enable us to obey them.